Hi, everybody. A quick message before we begin today's podcast. We have just released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. Stay tuned for the end of the episode for more information. Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back to our wonderful listeners. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about how to live and eat without pain. My guest today is Dr. Kim Bretz. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, you know, I start off all of my podcasts with like, tell us a little bit about you so that we kind of build some context for our conversation today. Yeah, so I am a naturopathic doctor. I am slightly impressed and horrified at the same time to say that this has actually been 20 years that I've been doing this for now. Um, I don't know how that happened. Um, But yeah, so I started out as a naturopath, I was working in just sort of as a general seeing all types of people. And probably about 12, 13 years ago, I ended up getting hired to work in the area of the gut microbiota or all the bacteria that live in and on us. And it was this time in the world where we were moving out of the idea that um, all germs are bad and they all cause infection. And we were moving into this idea that, oh, we have a lot of these good guys that are actually doing a lot to help how we function as human beings. And so I've ended up actually focusing my practice really heavily into gut health and the microbiota. And then how does food interact with all of this? And it's ended up changing my perspective on health and food and what is happening when we're eating and how that can interact with um, disease as well. So it really changed my perspective in in a huge way. It's so interesting. And and yeah, we're starting to see so much more interest and uh, research coming into the field of gut health. And I can't wait to dive into this. Um, Let's maybe start with like some real basics, which is like when we say gut health, like what does that even mean? Yeah. And it is something that is, I think, previously and again, sort of even when I started in as a naturopath and what I learned about the gut was very much about how do we digest and absorb food from the perspective of our own human cells. So um, we learned about the fact that 90 to 95% of food is going to be broken down in the small intestine. And I remember for me thinking about gut health and human health, it was around this idea of then, well, how do we absorb that extra five to 10%? How do I get all of that extra nutrition for me or for my patients? Um, So it was very much this um, human perspective that we had on gut health and not wanting to have 
constant negative symptoms around pain or around diarrhea or constipation or around bloating, but also keeping in mind that the average person does get some bloating or we do get stool changes that happen occasionally, just differentiating between when it is actually causing a quality of life issue. But now when we talk about gut health, we still keep those things in mind. But now we also have to focus on this idea that we have an estimated, and of course, this is a made up number, but 40 trillion microbial cells that live in and on us. And the vast majority of them are living in your digestive tract. And so that's like a handy fact for people who play Trivial Pursuit. When we look at it from the perspective of um, human cells, it actually means that we have more bacterial or microbiota cells in our body than we have our own human cells. So thankfully, our human cells are very big compared to the really tiny microbial cells that we have. So we look like our super cute human beings. It would be much creepier otherwise. Um, but it's more than just the numbers of them. They are constantly doing things. So when we talk about good bacteria, what it means is that they are making gases and chemicals that do good things for us. And a lot of that can be focused around gut health, but it also affects the rest of the human body. So they will make gases and chemicals that make things move through us at a normal pace. So not constipation or diarrhea. They can help with lowering pain or they can help with making chemicals that focus around that gut brain connection that we'll talk about. When we have more bad bacteria, certainly at the far, far end, it could be an infection, but in that middle point, it could be we're causing damage to the lining of our gut. So we have more of that leaky gut thing that could be going on, or we're messing up our transit time. So we have diarrhea or constipation, or one of the hallmarks that we often see of bad bacteria is that we can have a lot more bloating or socially inappropriate gas or that upward push that could cause reflux-like symptoms. Um, so they can do all these negative things. That's not just about the cells of our own human digestive tract. It's actually modulated through those bacteria. And it's really changed how we understand gut health now. Wow. Uh, yeah. Like just kind of having a mind blowing moment here, <laughs> like, because I don't think that we can really truly like grasp that, like, and 42 trillion, like whether you said 42 billion or 42 trillion, it's like mind blowing, like how could, you know, I kind of alluded to like grains of sand on a beach. Like if you break it down and you think of, I wonder how many grains of sand is required yeah. to make this beach here. And that, and what you're saying is like, we have our own beaches, like inside mm -hmm. our bodies, that is more of them than is us. It's crazy. For sure. And we never thought about them in that way before, because previously the only thing that we wanted to do was kill them. It was the idea that uh, a good germ is a dead germ. So we were very okay with the idea that we were killing all of them. And then when we had this moment where we realized this literal holy crap moment of there are so many of them, and not only are there so many of them, but they control so many functions within our human body. And we messed them up before we even knew what normal was. Um, so it's this really crazy paradigm shift in how we understand not only how humans act, 
but it's also about human nutrition as well, because we really do need to think about not only what, what is that 90 to 95% of the nutrients that I'm going to absorb in the small intestine that is going to affect my human cells, but actually what are we feeding our gut bacteria, which translates into that balance of good and bad bacteria. And then what kind of symptoms do we experience? And those are actually some of the things where we'll say, you know what, I ate this and then it made me feel this way. Um, that's often more related to the gut microbiota as opposed to what is happening in our human cells. Things often take a lot longer when we're looking at how do we fix an organ versus a single cell, tiny organism that eats something and makes a chemical quite quickly. Um, so it really changes how we understand us as humans, but human nutrition as well. If we don't understand the bacteria, we don't understand food or nutrition. I want to take another like quick step back more, more just like defining, right? Because, you yep. know, um, we hear these terms, we hear these words. And so you said gut microbiome or microbiota, mm -hmm. like is microbiota and microbiome the same thing? Can you just maybe kind of break it down to like, you know, when you think about it, what does, what does it mean? Yeah. So most of the time we use those terms interchangeably. They don't actually mean the same thing, but they're very, very close to each other. So the microbiota is basically just the bacteria that live in and on us. So if we talk about the gut microbiota, it means specifically those bacteria that live in the gut. If we talk about the vaginal microbiota or microbiome, it's those that live there. And we can do that for an environment as well. What's your garden's microbiota, um, where you're growing your plants or things along those lines. But basically it's just the collection of bacteria. And then we, we sort of expand on that when we talk more about the microbiome, but what are they doing? Um, and we can talk about them from their DNA or RNA perspective and what do they code for? But generally, if I'm talking, I'm just going to be speaking to that idea of the microbiota, or the microbiome, and we're talking about all those bacteria that are living in and on you. Cool. Um, a sidebar question, because uh, so... <laughs> like the gut microbiome, you said that there's like good guys and, you know, quote unquote, bad guys. And I, I wonder, like, do the, do the bad guys need to be there? Are they there in small quantities? Do they need to be there? Um, you know, is the good guys keeping the bad guys in check and yeah. they're there? Like, absolutely. It is something that I think, sometimes we get very, very black and white on things. And we think that it is only good and bad. Um, so we, we would never want to have sort of bad guys around is something that I can see people would think that, but that's actually not true. So within all of these kinds of bacteria that we have, um, one of the things that actually drives me insane is that they will talk about some random bacteria that will come up on a test that someone, not the ones that are causing you to have gastroenteritis, but some of the ones that are considered sort of good or bad. And on a test, it will say you have a high level of X bacteria. And then it will say, if your levels are too high, this could be causing you pro-inflammatory conditions. 
but if it's too low, it could be causing you diabetes. And it's sort of this, so what do I do with that piece of information can get really confusing. But the way that we look at it is, is generally we want to be having more of the good guys, but we also need those bad guys to, to keep certain things in check. So we want to have more bacteria that are going to be producing anti-inflammatory chemicals to help us lower pain, um, just to help our body function better. But inflammation has a place in our body. If we have damage or a wound or something happens, inflammation needs to happen as part of the process. So we don't want to have no bacteria that would be pro-inflammatory because it wouldn't, we wouldn't heal properly or do the things that we're supposed to do when we actually do have damage. Um, from my perspective, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes I say things are interesting and then I think, oh, I'm not sure that other people agree with me. But when we look at individuals who live in lower socioeconomic status countries, we find that they their bacterial set is very good at mounting an inflammatory response when they need to. But then when the response or when the, um, the process is done, it shuts itself down again really, really quickly. What we find in North Americans and, and in European populations as well is we mount the inflammatory response, but we don't turn it off very well. And they think that's because we have this imbalance between the good and the bad, not because we, we shouldn't have the bad, but just this imbalance is happening more. So it's kind of complex. It's not about we should have all good and no bad. Um, but yeah, we're mixed up is basically what we are. And, and I guess where that question sort of prompted me from, you know, thinking from my pelvic health, because I don't do, you know, the mm -hmm. specifics is like, for example, you know, urine tests coming back positive constantly for E. coli or whatever, X, Y, yep. or Z. And then, you know, I sometimes wonder to myself, like, are there going to be components of that bacteria in the urinary tract system that like when things get out of check, because, you know, patients will always ask me like, well, where did this come from? Like I do all the, the hygiene things, I do all the things. And I'm like, hmm, like I wonder if those bacteria are there wait, and they're opportunistic, right? Like when mm -hmm. things shift in our environment, do they then have like more free reign? Um, obviously, yes, you can introduce bacteria to the urinary tract, but I, I wonder in the like recurring UTI situation, like that's where I start to wonder, hmm, I wonder if the gut or I wonder if the microbiome here is having some distress. Yeah. And we actually see that really, really commonly around the vaginal microbiome, which we do understand better than the urinary bladder at this point. But we know if we're losing out on a bunch of our good bacteria, um, it's kind of weird to think about because we always talk about people wanting to be alkaline. They want this more alkaline body, but in the areas where things can get in like our stomach or the vaginal area, we want the pH to be quite acidic actually. So a lot of our good bacteria, if you think about lactobacillus acidophilus, it means that it is a lactic acid producing bacteria. So it inherently makes an environment that is not hospitable to a lot of those other bad bacteria or yeast. And so if you have a few yeast, 
in this general environment, it's not a big deal. But all of a sudden, if we shift and get this infection that happens, we're losing out on those lactic acid producing bacteria. We get this more alkaline environment. And now all of these weirder things can flourish. Um, and so that is something that's a really big problem when we lose some of the stuff that we would normally inherently have there we not only change the numbers and the names of what is there, we change the entire environment. And I think about it like my lawn. I am unfortunately one of those people who does not grow a good lawn, which I've actually ripped most of it out for that reason. Um, but I have one of those neighbors who has the perfect lawn. And if he gets a weed, he can get it out of there really easily. He just pulls that weed out and then the grass kind of grows into the spots. For me, because there's so many weeds in that area, if I pull out a weed, 8,000 more just flow into that area because there's the environment isn't right, the soil isn't right, the pH isn't right. Everything is kind of imbalanced for the way that I would want it to be if I wanted to have a lawn, quite honestly. But um, it just it doesn't work out properly. So we shift into that bad bacteria. Oh, that's such but, a great example. Yeah, but I do have to just do one little thing here around the pelvic health side of things, um, because one of the things that I find most frustrating is the idea that women are saying, like, my hygiene is so good. I am like, I'm doing it all right. Uh, one of the things that I find is extraordinarily frustrating is this idea that women are not clean enough. Yeah. Um, this is something that if we were talking about that, it is around cleanliness, then I think all babies should have urinary tract infections all the time. Um, it is something that they sit in a diaper with feces there. If we're talking about men and their underwear at points, I think we have seen that they are not paragons of hygiene all the time. Yet we make it that for some reason, women have not been clean enough. And I think that started years ago when they were looking at Lysol products for women and things that when we look at the actual literature on who are the women who are getting the most infections, either bladder or urine or sorry, urinary tract or vaginal, we're actually seeing the more products that people are using, the more chemicals that they're using, the more that that is upsetting the microbiota in those areas. Um, and for any woman who is thinking that she is not clean enough, and that is part of it, the messaging that women are getting is actually potentially making this worse. And that is so damaging to a woman's psyche to be thinking that she is not clean enough. It is maddening to me. And the studies around the microbiome are backing that up. Thank you for clarifying that because I should have clarified what I meant by doing all the yeah. right things as in like, you know, wiping front to back, um, you know, wearing cotton underwear for breathability. I was thinking yeah. more of those things, but yes. you know, the vagina is a self-cleaning oven. Please <laughs> Do not put stuff in there. Just water. Just wash it with water. It's fine. Yes. Um, yes. So thank you for clarifying that. Piece yeah. <laughs> super important. Um, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back. I just I have to digress there <laughs> for a moment. But let's yeah. talk about the gut brain connection because mm -hmm. I've heard it um, being referred to as our second brain, um, and so I'd like 
can you sort of, um, from a basic level, obviously it's very complex, but if you could break it down into the Reader's Digest version of what the heck is a gut-brain connection and is it a second brain? Yeah, so there is there is so much that we're learning about right now within this. So for any cell in our body, we're going to get um, nerve connections that are, are going to be telling us things that go back and forth that are going to say either you are in a calm place and everything's okay, which I don't think most of us have felt for the last year, um, or that something dangerous is happening and it, it tells you to do that. So all of our cells have that, including the digestive tract. But then in the digestive tract, we also have something called the enteric nervous system. And this is very much like our lizard brain sort of connection. Um, So for me, this is where we can get those immediate reactions around um, if you ever go to a triathlon and check out or a long race and you go to the bathrooms there, they are the most disgusting places on the face of the earth because everyone is nervous and panicking and they're having that nerve related diarrhea that happens. Um, so we can see that, or I know for myself, when I've had very, very high levels of stress, I get extremely nauseated and it, I, food that would normally appeal to me doesn't appeal to me anymore. So we know that we can have these very direct signaling that tells if if our brain says that something's really wrong, it changes how our gut works. And in the same way, if our gut thinks, or if we feel something off in our gut, um, all of a sudden that can induce feelings of, of anxiety or distress in our brain. So we get that back and forth system that can happen. But we're also learning that when we have a lot of stress that's going on, it changes our microbiota. So we can understand changing our microbiota, I think, pretty easily if we take an antibiotic. Um, We've just killed off a whole lot of bacteria. We understand that concept really well, but we are seeing very clearly that stress can do that as well. Um, And then on the other side of it, stress Uh, or sorry, changes in the gut microbiota, we can see that those change um, some of the things that they make. So bacteria can make a chemical called GABA and GABA helps us be less anxious. Um, It helps calm down the nervous system. So we may be making less of that chemical now, and then that is going to change how our body is responding from a stress perspective. So it's very much this back and forth side of things. And it becomes so much more difficult because we also understand that the more um, anxiety or depression or what we say are, are sort of concurrent psychiatric conditions that are going on, which do not have to be anything beyond anxiety or depression. But when we have those going along with our gut conditions, we know that there is more treatment failure that's going to happen in those gut conditions. Um, So this connection is really, really strong. And we actually refer to it now as the gut brain microbiota connection, actually, because we know that the bacteria are also playing a really big part in this. Yeah. And, and I'm starting to see that type of research, um, you know, coming into the, the physiotherapy realm. Um, mm-hmm. I was at a presentation about pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain, and she was presenting research showing that the gut microbiome can actually 
um, like increase pain thresholds, meaning it doesn't take very much for you to experience pain. Cause you know, we thought it was like the relaxin and the hormone, the mm-hmm. pregnancy hormones that were causing the pelvic girdle pain, which they were, you know, studies show that like somebody with more or less, it didn't correlate very well mm-hmm. with pelvic girdle pain, but that there was research to show, you know, stress, uh, job dissatisfaction, my gut microbiome, impacted who experienced more pain in pregnancy. It's just, it's fascinating. It is. It's this whole area. We have this term called visceral hypersensitivity, um, which means that some people with this will experience more pain just in general. Um, And there's a lot of things around stress and the microbiota that will play a part in that, but it becomes very difficult um, when things like that start happening because of this, this heightened response without actually seeing that there's something dangerous or life-threatening that is occurring. Um, because number one, it causes just in, insane distress that is going on when you're feeling these symptoms that are there and you know, they're there and individuals are being told that nothing is wrong. We can't find anything wrong with you. So it's hugely distressing on that side of things. Um, but it's also something that we then tend to get, especially around the side of gut health, we get this avoidance response. Um, so people will try to do anything to avoid that. And that often can relate to avoiding certain foods, avoiding social scenarios, avoiding going anywhere where they don't know where the washroom is going to be exactly. There's so many things that people will do to try and avoid this. But unfortunately, we also know that that can maintain and actually heighten those reactions that are going on. It's not fixing anything necessarily. So we see it in pregnancy. We see it in gut disorders. There's so many areas that we're understanding this better now, but people are often not getting a message beyond, we'll just do things that just avoid things that bother you, not realizing that that can actually be part of the problem. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, you know, it's one of the questionnaires that I screen for is fear or fear avoidance um, yes. behaviors, right? Because I know if somebody's in pain that needs to be able to move, but they're avoiding movement because of pain, it actually turns into a negative feedback loop. Yeah, absolutely. We have an avoidance response for our for our gut patients as well to see how much of that is happening, and then how do we start to move in the opposite direction in a way that feels safe. Um, especially when you've gotten the messages through your body and through the external world that you're best to avoid all the things, then it feels really hard to look at it from a different perspective. I love that you do that too. Yeah. And you're not really living at that point, right? No. Not doing the things that you want to be doing, which gives us meaning, which gives us our sense of purpose and safety, you know, there, there is a sense of safety in having a purpose and feeling grounded in doing the things you love to do. Well, all of a sudden, if you're not doing those things, right. And then you have these symptoms and the symptoms are distressing, right. So you got that stress piece, then you get tension in the body. That tension leads to musculoskeletal pain that leads to stress, which affects the gut microbiome. Oh yeah. It's this crazy circle. And I think when I see people, because I deal with gut health a lot, the thing that they're avoiding the most is food. Um, they have the list of things that they've tried and maybe they 
it worked for a while, but then it's not working well enough. So then they take out more foods and, and the thing we eat multiple times a day, like it's a non-optional staying alive thing. And when you're afraid of food or you don't want to be giving your mother-in-law the list of things that you can't have to eat at family events, or you can't eat, um, at a work. Um, if you went, well, before COVID, when you went to um, conferences or you had a meeting at work um, or the people that I get who are terrified to eat before they go to work and they won't eat until the end of the day um, or you don't want to go out and eat with friends. And when I have people fill out their questionnaires, the number of things that come up on our as a five rating, which is the, um, the highest rating they can give around changing their diet for symptoms, not eating around other people, being afraid to go out, not wanting to eat at a restaurant, not wanting to eat with other people that are not in their immediate household, never wanting to eat food that is not in their own control. Yeah, it's awful. It's often not fixing them. And I really don't think that health is not being able to eat food. Um, like you, if, the only way that you can feel okay is to have a list of nine foods that you can eat. I really don't think you're living very well. Um, and they're just in this stuck scenario a lot of the time and really having a horrible quality of life. Um, it's just something to me that's one of the, the saddest parts of what I see is that people are so afraid of something that is supposed to be keeping us alive but also as part of our culture as human beings. It is part of our celebrations. It's part of our sadness. It's part of all of these facets of who we are. And it's just become something that is so difficult and scary. It is one of the, one of the saddest things that I see. Indeed. Indeed. Um, I want to ask around like, you know, what are some early warning signs that like the gut may be under distress? Like, how can we start to, you know, because I don't think people know it's like, okay, I had one day of diarrhea, but I ate something, you know, ate something yes. weird or unusual. Um, yeah. But like, when is it like, oh, I had one bad day? Like when, what are some early warning signs? Yeah. And it is something that I was just looking at some numbers that for the average person with irritable bowel syndrome um, and with women in um, uh, North American countries and things like that, the rates of, of um, women with IBS can be upwards of 25%. So this is something that is, is pretty significant. It can take almost seven years to get diagnosed on average for, for people. So obviously we're not getting this right. Um, so the one-off diarrhea, even the feeling sick after you had pizza and a bunch of cocktails and the next day you're like, oh, well, that didn't go through me very well. That's pretty normal to have that happen. Um, but when people are having um, regular loose stool or diarrhea or constipation and constipation, I think you'll probably understand this very well from the pelvic health um, side of things is not simply just not having a bowel movement every day. It can often be very hard to pass stool. Um, there's a lot of straining that's going on. Um, what we call incomplete evacuation, where you're like, I don't think this is done, but oh, well, I think I'm just going to get up right now. When that's happening, um, 
over the course of a few months and you're seeing that it's just continuing, it doesn't have to be every day. Um, maybe it's happening two or three times a week. Um, you might be swinging back and forth. Those are really common. Um, one of the first signs that I see though is a lot of bloating and bloating if we make gas, all of us make gas, all of our bacteria are going to eat stuff and we're going to make that. That is again, a human being sort of thing that we do. Um, so I will notice that I actually try to eat a lot of food that I know that the bacteria eat, which I, I know means that they are making chemicals and gases. So I may notice that my, um, I can normally see the vertical lines on my abs, never, never the six pack type, but um, that at the end of the day, I might not be able to see them as well. That's not a problem. That is regular physiological bloating that can happen. But when it's something that you're feeling like, oh, I have to wear a different size pair of pants at the end of the day, um, or my, I feel really full and uncomfortable and it's making me not want to eat. Um, when you're eating, you're thinking, but I'm eating really healthy food. It's not that I'm eating pizza and cocktails all the time. And this food is not making me feel good, or you're getting a lot of reflux that's happening. Those are things that are actually as much as the commercials on TV are just saying here, you can take this medication and it's fine. Those are things that are not actually fine. Those are all early warning signs that you're running into problems. And what would be the consequence? I mean, what are some of the consequences of not addressing it? Like, what if I just go and I buy that product at, you know, at the drugstore yeah. and I take it and, you know, yeah, I feel better. And then, you know, I basically just keep doing that. You know, what, what can happen? Like, what are some things that can happen? Yeah. So usually it's not fixing anything. So first of all, you're just continuing with this condition. You're just kind of masking that it's there. So that's not ideal. Most people find that their symptoms just continue to increase slowly over time. Um, so they're taking more and more medication. So with reflux, they start out with the over-the-counter stuff, and then they're at the doctor getting the prescription stuff and the dosing's going up. Um, things like those medications, um, uh, change the pH in the stomach. So it means that we have more risk for infection down the line or more risk around how we absorb nutrients. So osteoporosis risk goes higher. Um, in a lot of cases though, I'm looking at it from the perspective of the gut, first of all, is where we digest and absorb food. So if we have damage there that can affect the rest of how we're functioning, it's also something that that's where most of our microbiota lives. So if we're ignoring that there's an imbalance that's going on between the good and the bad, as I mentioned at the beginning, we affect what's happening directly in the gut, but then that can change us systemically as well. So it can affect potentially our anxiety or glucose tolerance around diabetes or um, other inflammatory responses. We know that um, changes in the bacteria can be related to autoimmune conditions or more allergies or obesity or things that we maybe wouldn't have thought about that all of a sudden everything else in the body starts getting harder over time. Um, and it's, so it's a really big deal when we're looking at what's going on. And the fact that probably we're looking at over 60% of the population has gastrointestinal disorders. 
um, and most of them aren't satisfied with their treatment, this is just not working at all. It's yeah, yeah. It's this crazy sort of scenario. Okay. So on that note, you know, if, <laughs> if, if we're, you know, is, is it, is it ever too late? Like to not like, in my it, opinion, is it reversible? <laughs> yeah. So in most cases it is where if we're talking about something like a Crohn's or colitis that has gotten very severe, this is a, a sort of a whole other spectrum of things there's going to be a point where surgery may happen. It doesn't mean that we're not going to look at some of the other things that are going on, but there can be some really, really bad things that happen. That's not what is going on for most people though. Um, and in those cases, the way that I, I love looking at the microbiota is instead of thinking about my liver or my heart or something where it's going to take time for those cells to turn over. We don't know how to change some of the damage with age. Like there's a certain things that we don't have as much control over. These single celled organisms are constantly dying and changing the balance. So we actually always have an opportunity to change what is happening in the gut microbiota. That's one of the reasons that I think this is the most fascinating area that we can possibly work in. It's not necessarily easy, but it is always changeable. That's the whole thing about the gut microbiota. Um, and there was a fascinating study that was looking at individuals in, I think it was in Japan or China. I can't remember which, but they were looking at the microbiota of individuals who were super healthy. Um, so the criteria to get into the study meant that 97% of people who applied saying that I am super healthy didn't actually get into the study. And what they found were the people, whether they were 30 or 60 or over a hundred years old, they all had a very similar healthy microbiota um, versus individuals who weren't, um, weren't as healthy. So we know that the healthier we can keep this or the, the better the balance that we can keep in our gut microbiota, it actually can help us live longer, healthier lives. So we always want to be working on having healthier, happier gut microorganisms. Absolutely. I let's, let's chat about, okay. So, you know, how do we, how do we do this? How do we, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like obviously everybody's going to have individual things that they need to do and they should work with a practitioner to get those individualized yep. things. But like, there's going to be general things that are common threads. Um, What would be some of those common things that, you know, people could do to just like change the balance a little? Absolutely. Um, One of the easiest things to keep in mind is that gut bacteria don't really eat proteins or fats. They eat carbohydrates. So what it means is when we want to have a, if we want to feed a good bacteria, we want to have a lot of plant food in there and a lot of unrefined plant food in there. Um, So it does not mean that people have to be vegetarian or vegan at all, um, but it means that we need to have a lot of this plant-based food. So if people are having a very refined diet, um, so at breakfast, you have an Eggo waffle with syrup, and then you have a Wonder Bread sandwich with luncheon meat and cheese and a slice of lettuce on there. 
we can look at that and say, you're not feeding your bacteria at that point. So for me, I'm always looking at what can I do to feed my gut microbiota? Now, I will say, if I'm talking about the foods that I'm talking about, and you're thinking at home that, okay, but I eat these foods and they make me feel bad. That's when you want to start thinking, oh, there's probably something wrong with my microbiota and I need to talk to someone. But there are things that I'm always doing. So I'm, I'm looking at, um, I eat oats all the time. Um, it's one of those foods that we actually see can help feed the gut bacteria in a really good way. When I'm working with my inflammatory bowel disease patients where they have some of the worst inflammation that's going on, we actually see that this can help with lowering inflammation in a lot of individuals. Um, so for me, I actually eat it for lunch a lot of the time. Um, I personally didn't think I liked oats because the only way I would eat it is if I had basically as much sugar as I had oats, um, because oats are not, they're just a bland tasting grain. Um, so instead I treat them the way that I would rice or quinoa. So I, we actually just yesterday made up our, our weekly batch that we cook up a lot of mushrooms and onions, which are also really great for the gut bacteria, um, add in some spinach and usually just some seasoning that we enjoy and mix it all together like a casserole. And I might put an egg on top of that or something for a really simple lunch. Um, I think about what are the fibers that are going to be helpful for them because we know that most individuals are not getting enough fiber in their diet. And that's going to be part of what is helpful for the gut bacteria as well. So a lot of times people think that fiber specifically is to help with constipation. Um, we actually don't have a huge amount of studies on that that are, are very helpful, but we can really clearly see that there's certain fibers like psyllium fiber um, that have been shown to help raise a lot of your good bacteria levels. And those are things that I want to do. Um, I also garden, um, not only because I want to control some of my own food that I can have, but we know that some of the soil microbes can help with lowering anxiety and depression through the microorganisms. So there's so many little things that we can be doing. Uh, question about oats. Um, mm -hmm. do you go for like the two minute oats or you go for like steel cut oats? I go for the steel cut oats. Absolutely. It's going to have more of that, the food for the bacteria. Yeah. Once we make things sort of the, the white version of things, the white rice, the, the two minute quick cook oats are generally going to be that, um, we've lost the stuff that feeds the bacteria. But that being said, I do get mine from Costco and they're par cooked, which means that it only takes about seven minutes to boil them. Whereas if they hadn't been pre-done like that, um, it would have taken me about 40 minutes to cook them. So I do take some of the lazy outs when I can. Fair enough. I, I ask because, you know, I have the Costco like quick oats. Um, yes. but my husband is like, no, I like the steel cut. And so he'll yeah. make them because he has to stand there and mix it and it takes forever. Yes. Um, yeah, no, but there's a different version. You should look for those ones. The quick cook steel cut oats. Those are my favorite. Excellent. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, there it's it like, I think taste wise, um, I think the, the slower cooked, uh, steel cut, like I've, cause I'm trying to feed my own good bacteria. Like, yes, I, I find that that's, that's, that's much, be much better. So I try to think of like eating as in not necessarily, you know, what do I want to 
eat, but like, what does my gut bacteria? And the interesting that I found thing I found because people will be like, well, don't you crave things? And it's like, after you get past a certain point, you stop craving certain you do. things. And I really, especially when, and I always hate this as a naturopath because I think that this shouldn't happen, but when life falls apart and I start thinking that, oh, I need to eat chocolate covered almonds all the time. Um, and that sort of, I start heading down that pathway, my body legitimately through the chemicals that I am making and through the signaling that my gut microbes are sending me, they are telling me that I want these things. Those signals are wrong though. Sometimes our body signals lie. And, and it's very interesting that once I get back onto the eating in the healthier style and taking those foods out, that all of a sudden those signals do shut down quite fast. Although those first few days of it where my body, and it's funny because my body will tell me things that I want to eat things that I wouldn't even normally want to eat anyway. So it's like, you should eat gummy bears. I'm like, but don't normally eat gummy bears, but my brain is insistent um, <laughs> that it requires gummy bears. I'm like, ah, oh. yeah. So it's crazy making when that happens, but we do get inappropriate signals that are happening sometimes, which is very hard to differentiate. And it's interesting. It's a good thing that you brought that up because, you know, I talk about that a lot with persisting pain because mm -hmm. persisting pain isn't always sending you the right messaging because usually yeah. by that point, the tissue's already healed. Right. Right. And so that's it's no we have those avoidance responses as well, that this food is dangerous when it's probably actually not, but part of eating the food is telling you, and that is not to say the same with you. Like there yeah. are times where the signal is right, but when we're trying to differentiate that, ourselves and just relying on some of those signals that our brain is telling us. Um, we're not always equipped to be able to tell the difference on that. And, and we just tend to spiral in, in a negative direction and it, it continues to send us those signals and it actually can make us worse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where we talk about like, you know, strengthening that mind body connection, right? Like being yeah. with the, our sensations sort of long enough to begin to allow the awareness to help us begin to differentiate. I think there are some mm -hmm. instinctual um, processes within our central nervous system, within our survival centers that like, if we can just kind of be present with it without mm -hmm. co that constant, like, I need to get rid of it. I need to get rid of it. Or I don't mm -hmm. want to think about it. I don't want to do it. We, we sort of miss out on some, some ability to learn what our body is in fact, trying to tell us. Right. Yeah. And we're seeing that a lot with gut health around that mind body connection around mindfulness, around even gut hypnotherapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. They play a huge part in changing some of these negative responses that we have around, around pain, around food. Um, and it's actually a big part now, especially after this year of stress that everyone's been going through. It's a huge part of getting towards healing and for my patients with their goal of not being afraid of food and sort of being able to get back to living a more sort of quote unquote normal life where they get to eat um, without being afraid all the time. It is, it's such a huge part of it. We cannot separate it out. Yeah. And that kind of goes into the next question that I was going to ask is, you know, like, can people live 
and eat without pain and crazy diets. So, yeah, I think they can. I've seen a lot of people where we have been able to um, move them back towards eating in a more healthy, regulated way. So, and I always clarify with that, that there's a couple caveats. One, someone's telling me that they have an anaphylactic nut allergy. It's not that my goal is me as a naturopath trying to get you to eat nuts again. There's going to be no scenario where I'm saying here, eat a nut, I'll hold your EpiPen. Um, so that's not what we're talking about. Things like celiac disease, where right now we don't have another option, but for someone to avoid gluten, that's that. It's also something that if you eat craft dinner and Doritos and chocolate covered almonds, and then you feel ill after eating that, I don't feel too bad about that. That's a lot of highly refined processed food and it's appropriate for the body and the microbiota not to be happy with that. But we're grownups. And if you decide that you want to do it and you transiently feel bad and then you feel normal again, fine. But I really don't think that it should be that you can't ever have wheat or dairy or eggs or corn or soy or onions or mushrooms or apples or whatever it is. And if you eat those things that you have symptoms for multiple days that you can't bounce back from, that is something that I really work hard with my patients, both through figuring out what's going on in the microbiota, gut healing sides of things, that gut brain connection around that stress and avoidance responses. There's so many things that we can do to get this back on track. It's not that every person is going to be able to eat every single food, um, but I do see that most people can get more control both over their symptoms and returning foods back into their diet. It's really important to me. Well, what we're talking about is, you know, if you have a cheat day, let's yeah. say three, four times a year at a party or something, yep. you know what I mean? That you're not going to then go, you know, into fetal position the next day, you'll be able right. to tolerate because you've built a buffer and a window of tolerance for the one-offs, but it shouldn't be Absolutely. an everyday thing. Exactly. Yeah. And it's certainly not something that I want people to have to be so extremely regimented about every single thing that they eat. Um, it, it just doesn't work into life. Like it, it, you, it's hard when people have kids or jobs or mother-in-laws or father-in-law or whatever it is that you're going to be perfect every single second of every single day. Um, that's not, that's not what life is. I don't think that food has ever been something that we've said you have to be perfect and you never get to celebrate and enjoy with other people. So I fully agree that there are going to be times where you, you're not going to be perfect. You may not feel perfect, but it's not that you're diseased. It's that you've just given your body something that's not ideal for it. And you're not used to it either. And it's usually that someone has gone from eating a fairly healthy diet, the vast majority of the time. And I see that this happens sometimes when I'm going into a reintroduction phase with patients that they're like, Oh, I'm not going to follow the chart that she gave me. And I'm just going to eat this pizza and margaritas right now. And then I feel really bad. And then they come back and they're like, oh yeah, I didn't do that again. I went back to the chart and I went through really slowly on this process. Um, so when people are moving from having 
really big restrictions. We kind of have to do this slowly versus when people are back into a more healthy style of eating. If you go and do that, you're not going to feel great. But again, it's not going to cause you to be quote unquote diseased again. Um, Yeah, there's a big difference on that. Well, uh, like just being mind blown here because I'm geeky and I like science and stuff. So I'm just like, Ooh, this is awesome. Um, I want to switch gears now and talk about, I know you have some programs. I know you are out there doing things. Um, Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So I have been really fortunate to um, have lectured and consulted in the area of the gut microbiota for well over a decade right now. So um, a lot of that has been education around different healthcare providers. So I run programs in my office for individuals with different gastrointestinal disorders. Um, But it's also something that I've moved um, to the point where I have Um, a program that's coming out for practitioners um, this summer, actually, um, to help put everything together for people. Um, Because it is something that I remember, and this is, I, this was years ago that I was quoting this, but when I graduated from school, if I do a research search under the terms gut microbiota, there were 13 (laughs) studies that came out in the year that I graduated. When I looked at this, and this was probably six or seven years ago, there were thousands, I think there were about 6,000 studies that were coming out a year. It's hard for practitioners to keep up with the research. It's hard to put it all together in usable ways. So that's what I've been doing is trying to not only do this for my own patients, for practitioners as well. To, to digest and, and put it together for like, okay, how do I take all of this? And like, yeah. how's this clinically relevant Absolutely. And just to use the handouts. So to share the things around what's your avoidance response questionnaire, you don't have one. Okay, here's one that you can have. Here's the program for gut hypnotherapy, like all of those sorts of things, just to make it a lot easier. Because when I look at the fact that over 60% of the population has gut disorders, and most of them, one of the studies showed that up over 75% of people were not happy with their treatment. This is an area that there's a lot of need, but it's also an area where we actually have the research to back up what we do on the side of nutrition and probiotics and prebiotics and mind-body connection and the nutrient deficiencies and the gut healing. Like there's so much information, which makes it a really great area that I work with gastroenterologists because they recognize that side of things is, is really important, but they don't have the time for it. So this is an area where I think we, as people who are working in um, this side of things can actually have a huge impact. We just need more people doing it because patients aren't doing well and that's not good enough. Yeah. And, and it can be daunting. Like I just think to like, when I started in pelvic health, you know um, the teachers, like, you know, you could get and purchase their handouts and stuff that probably took them years to put together right now. I have sort of my own as I research, but what I really, really needed in the beginning was please just give me your framework. Yeah. Let me just work from your framework. And then I, as I get more comfortable and as I do my own learning and my own interests come into it, it, I'm going to then have my own spin and my own information that I can add in 
but yeah. I don't know that I could have done it. I don't know that I could have started my practice in pelvic health without some framework. It, it, it just, yeah. I would have gotten there eventually, but man, you like, you know, my teachers cut out, you know, hours upon hours upon hours of creating handouts and like trying yeah. to piece all those things together so that, because again, you know, when pelvic health started, there was five main therapists, right? Yes. And they're like, yeah. oh my God, there's such a need for this. How do we, <laughs> how do we do this? So, so I think that it's really, really helpful, especially as you're like newer into a field to like get that yeah. sort of framework and mentorship too. It's such a big deal. We, we don't work in hospitals. We're not, we don't have that same, that same framework around it. So yeah, this is just the area that I utterly adore. Um, I'm that person who reads journal articles while I dry my hair. So um, it's just, for me, it is, it's fascinating. And it's just my, I don't know how this happened, but it's just my passion. So um, yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. Where, you know, so like on the client side, on the practitioner side, where can people yeah. find you, follow you, get more information? Yeah. So um, both um, both sides of it, my website is drkimbrettsnd.com. Um, and my Instagram page, I think, is drkimbrettsnd as well. I probably should have looked this up beforehand. That's okay. Um, we. Yeah. Uh, the same thing for Facebook. I do have a page for um, the public as well. We do also have a page for um, practitioners, which is the gut incubator. Um, so that's something that people can apply to, to get into as well. Um, so yeah, so those are a few areas that would be the best places for people to be reaching out. Awesome. And we will make sure to put all those links <laughs> in the yes. show notes. Uh, so you'll easily be able to find it and get all the yes. and, you know, don't yes. not relying on me for knowing what my own site's names actually are, <laughs> <laughs> which is totally fine. So you'll have to check out the show notes and all the links will all be there. I want to thank you so much for, um, you know, coming on my podcast to talk about this. I have learned a lot. I'm super excited about like hearing more about what's coming out in this research and it was just a really fun conversation so thank you yeah i have absolutely adored this so thank you so much and i love i love the pelvic health side of things and i should just from my last little comment um, it is one of the areas that i love working with pelvic physiotherapists um, especially around the bowel irregularity side of things so i i'm thrilled to be speaking with you today Awesome. And of course, I always want to take the opportunity to thank our listeners. And considering that 60% of the population is experiencing some sort of gastrointestinal distress, that means that you guys should be sharing this podcast like crazy. <laughs> um, just even from the basis of having people understand the basics of like what's gut health, what's a gut microbiome, and just like even the little itty bitty tips that she's provided, you could be changing somebody's life. So subscribe to the podcast and make sure you share it out. And we'll be connecting with everybody on the next episode. Bye for now. Hey guys, thanks for hanging out. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we have recently released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. And in this mini training, I take you through what pain is, 
how labor pain is different than like an acute ankle sprain type of pain. I talk about the three different ways that you can work with pain. And then at the end, I actually teach three different ways that you can work with labor pain to have a more positive birth experience. If you would like to access this free mini training, you can go to courses.ecophysio.com forward slash mini training, or you can look in the description of today's podcast episode. At the end of the description, a link will be there for you to get the free mini training. Hope to connect with you there. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.